Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Last week, we stopped right in the middle of Ezekiel 43. So you can turn to Ezekiel 43, and we're going to pick up in verse 13. We're also going to spend a little time in 1 Kings chapter 1 tonight. And we're going to be introduced to the sons of Zadok. And if you are not familiar with the sons of Zadok, we're going to go back and do a little bit of the history so that you understand, again, God demonstrating remarkable clarity, remarkable particularity about who can approach him. Now, some of the confusion about this portion of Ezekiel, the confusion arises almost invariably from not making a clear differentiation between the church generally and who God is speaking this prophecy to. Tonight you're going to see God say yet again that in speaking with the Levites, he's going to hold the Levites guilty for having taken Israel away from his genuine worship. However, even though he's going to announce that they are absolutely guilty, he then says, but nevertheless, you're going to serve me. So this is the people group that he's talking to. He's not talking to believing Israelites who became part of the church and were saved in Jesus Christ as part of the church. That's not who he's speaking to here. He's talking to unrepentant Israelites who have rebelled against him, who, because God is absolutely faithful, God is nevertheless going to keep every word he has ever made, every promise he has ever made, every covenant he has ever made, because of himself, because of his nature, because he is faithful to everything he has said. And he's going to make that even more obvious in the way he's going to say, you are guilty. You're guilty of rebelling against me. Now, what he's going to say to those particular Levites is, you're still going to serve, but you're not going to approach me. You're not ever going to come into my holy place, but you're going to have to take care of the house, the outer house. You're going to have to take care of the day-to-day chores. You're going to have to keep all the stuff clean. You're still going to end up serving me, but you're not going to approach me. The ones that are going to approach me are going to be the sons of Zadok. Because as you're going to see, Zadok, all the way back to King David and King Solomon, Zadok kept the worship of God. And so Solomon made Zadok the high priest. And having made him high priest, God continues the high priestly line from where Solomon left it. Solomon's temples then destroyed. The worship of God in Jerusalem is then thrown off. And when God reestablishes the worship, not only is he going to reestablish it after some of the sort of patterns and templates that he had established both in Moses and in Solomon, but he's going to pick up the high priesthood right where it left off with the sons of Zadok. So God is particular. God says, the sons of Zadok will be my high priests. They're the ones that are going to bring me my fat, my blood, my sacrifices They're the ones that will do that. You Levites, though you've rebelled terribly against me, and he's going to hold them guilty for leading Israel nationally astray and away from God. So God holds them accountable, but because he's God and because he's made promises to these very rebellious people, he nevertheless is going to restore those people, bring those people back, and then put them to work in his temple because that's what he designated for them ever since he brought Israel out of Egypt. When he brought Israel out of Egypt, the firstborn of every 
animal, every person, the firstborn male belonged to God. And then when God made the land divisions in Israel, once he brought them out of Egypt, at that point he said that rather than the firstborn of all Israel, he would take one tribe for himself. And he took the Levites. And the Levites had to serve in the temple. And they didn't get a land allotment. But the other tribes, they had to bring tithes of every produce, of every new fruit, of every new season, every harvest. They had to bring the first of all that to the Levites. And so God saw to it that the Levites were provided for, but they didn't get a land allotment like the others did. Okay, God's going to do the same thing. We're not going to see it tonight, but starting next week, God's going to start talking about land allotments again because he's bringing them back to the land. Now, remember that this is on the heels of, tonight we're only in chapter 43, starting at chapter 40, we saw the explanation of the future temple to be constructed. And back in chapter 37, we saw Ezekiel's dry bones that ended with God saying, this is the whole house of Israel who I will raise up on the last day. They're going to know that I'm God. They're going to be my people when I raise them up out of their graves and bring them back to their land. So this is all part of that same scenario that's been building up all the way through the book of Ezekiel. But you have to understand that the people group that Ezekiel is talking about, that God is prophesying toward, are not the people who Paul would write, in Christ there's neither male or female, free or bond, Jew or Gentile. I had someone throw that at me this week and say, but the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles is done away with. And I had to write back and say, in Christ, yes. Paul's point in saying that was that there were no restrictions in coming to Christ. If you were free or bond, if you were male or female, if you were Jew or Gentile, come to Christ. That's not the group that Ezekiel's prophesying to. The group that Ezekiel is particularly speaking to at this point are the Israelites who have rebelled against God, who Paul refers to in Romans 11, and says, very specifically, that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. Then he identifies who he means by all Israel. He says, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Okay, what does he mean? He means as touching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're still in rebellion against that. They're enemies of the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles who God has brought to faith in Christ. And then God's going to use the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. That's all Pauline theology. So in explaining the Israelites that Paul is talking about, Paul says they're enemies of the gospel for your sake, but, he doesn't leave it there, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sake. Okay, the fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is Israel, the rebellious nation, who are enemies of the gospel, who are nevertheless beloved by God for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who Ezekiel's talking to. So what is God going to do with them? God is not going to just bring them to salvation by grace through faith. That's the church promise. That's the new covenant promise. What he's going to do to national Israel is restore them as a nation and then restore the worship that he had demanded of them in the first place. Which worship they never accomplished. Having never accomplished it, God either has to say, well, they tried, never mind, or because he loves them, because as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For that reason, God is going to restore them as a nation, take them back to their land, and finally accomplish the worship 
that they had never actually accomplished on their own. He's going to finally drive them to doing all the stuff that he ever prescribed for them. Because God does not fail. Because God does not say, okay, you Israelites, you're going to worship me, and this is how it's going to be done, and I'm going to give you the first five books of Moses in order to describe all my laws and my rules and my temple and my tabernacle and the holiest place and and the priests and all that. I'm going to describe all of that to you, and then they don't do it. Well, God doesn't just say, well, I guess it can't be done. God doesn't give up. God, who is consistent with himself, instead is going to restore that same people group in order to make sure that they do provide for him the worship he has always required of them. Yes, sir? It sounds like we're saying that the, the, enemy, the enemies that were in Paul times were the ones who were not the elect. Now you're asking, well, then is God going to restore every single Israelite who ever lived? And the answer is no, he's not, because Jesus himself said to some of the Pharisees that their particular sin, when they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, their sin was never going to be forgiven, not in this age or the age to come. If you're going to make a rule, if you can find one exception, then the rule doesn't count anymore. So there's the exception. There there you've got some Pharisees who Jesus himself said are never going to be forgiven. So within national Israel, absolutely there are some who God is not going to redeem eternally. But if you miss the ongoing progressive work of God with Israel and the fact that Christ says to his disciples that they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel... So I believe that the language of the restoration of Israel doesn't have to be every single Israelite, but it has to be all 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes have to be restored. If you look at the the natural branches that are cut off, the same language that Ezekiel uses when talking about the dry bones, behold, our bones are dry, we're cut off. Well, then Paul picks up that language in Romans and says, we are cut off. That's right. Those tribes had been cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. They've been scattered among the Gentiles. And then Paul warns, don't brag against the natural branches, because if he grafted you in against your nature, he can graft them back in. And that's everything that all the prophets have all prophesied forever, that God is going to punish Israel but then restore Israel. So Paul, again, is speaking just like all the prophets. So my point is, to answer your question, God can accomplish that by grafting in the cut-off tribes. All Israel is all 12 tribes, but it doesn't necessarily have to be every single Israelite because we have examples of Israelites who God's never going to forgive. If you look in the Old Testament and you see Korah and his band swallowed up by the earth, taken straight down into hell. Okay, um, I'm going to guess not redeemed. You know, I'm going to have to go there. So we have examples, Old and New Testament, of Israelites individually who God doesn't appear to be redeeming or saving and is not forgiving. However, the promise of the restoration of Israel always includes all 12 tribes. And it's safe to say that during that time when that um, remnant escaped, from my understanding and belief throughout the years, that remnant was that one that was born and, and one day that escaped into two. That's that one part that escaped to the, to the mountains and the two, the two thirds the ones who are cut off. Are cut off. Is it safe to say then that those are the elect? I think it's difficult when you talk about election there. Because if you're talking about elect individuals, those are the folks, according to Paul, when he talks about a remnant that was left for Israel, they're the ones that believe in Christ. And that's the continuation of the elect of Israel. But then when you're talking about the nation unbelieving nation that's who Paul talks about as being enemies of the gospel but as touching the election 
beloved for the Father's sake. So when we're talking about individual salvation and election, that seems to be always church-based, Christ-based. Those people who were elected by God and brought to Christ as a gift to Christ to worship Christ forever. But then there's national Israel that have all these national promises like the land. And that group of people are enemies of the gospel. And yet, while so much of the church world is writing them off completely and saying, well, then God's done with them, or saying that the promises of God to Israel are now being fulfilled in some spiritual sense within the church, what the Bible says is God is faithful to that national group of people because he's made promises to that national group of people. And even though they're rebellious and even though they're enemies of the gospel, Nevertheless, according to Paul, they're still going to be saved. They're still going to be established. They're still going to have a kingdom because, not because of them, but because God is faithful to everything God ever said. Does that make any sense? Am I over-explaining it? Well, it makes sense, but I'm thinking about that group. They all are going to believe when they finally, on their second trip when Christ comes back, they're all yeah. going to believe. <clears throat> yes. They're going to see him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. But then what is their relationship with him? Their relationship with him is he's going to be their king, and he is going to rule with a rod of iron over national Israel and the Gentile nations that surround Israel. That's different than our relationship with him as head of the church. Does that make sense? They don't believe he's the Messiah then. Yeah, they'll finally accept... Israel's long-awaited and prophesied Messiah. But that's different than us looking to Christ our Savior. And I'm glad to see so many heads nodding because whenever I make those kinds of distinctions, and it'll happen this week, I'll get more email about it. Whenever I make those kind of distinctions, somebody will say, well, then you're talking dispensationalism. But I'm not. I'm just saying what the Bible says and putting together all the pieces that the Bible includes and coming to the conclusion that the Bible knows what it's talking about and the Bible makes these distinctions. And so I'm not preaching a, a program or a system like dispensationalism. I'm not attempting to counter covenantalism. I've never stood here and taught a system. I'm just saying what the Bible says People will accuse me at some point and have in the past of saying, well, then you're teaching two different ways of salvation. My answer is always no. Salvation is always in Christ. But how God determines your relationship with Christ or national Israel's relationship with Christ is up to God. Which was my mistake that I was making. I was trying to put them with us, but, but, they, were, but they always were different. But they are different. Now, there is that remnant group of first century Jews who came to Christ. And Paul draws a correlation in Romans 8 and 9 where he says, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah had God not left us a remnant. But when he refers to the remnant, they're remnant believers. They recognize their Messiah. And so the relationship between that remnant is different than the relationship with all Israel who are enemies of the gospel. Paul accounts for both groups in Romans 9 to 11. He talks about the remnant that are believing Israel. That's when he's talking about neither Jew or Gentile, free or bond, male or female, in Christ, all or one. Okay, that's that one new man he keeps talking about. Those are the believers but then what about Israel? What about unbelieving Israel? What about national Israel? What about all the promises that were made to them? Well, Paul says those promises are still good because as touching the election, they are beloved because of promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the way God is going to deal with them is different. We're going to see tonight, if I ever stop introducing It's different than the relationship that he has with us. I can demonstrate. When has he ever required of any of us that we serve in the temple? 
Okay, he didn't require that of us, but he requires of the Levites. Does that mean there's a difference in how he dealt with you and how he dealt with the Levites? Yeah. The question is, the big million-dollar question in Christianity and religion at large, the big question is, is it okay for God to do that and make a differentiation between you and national Israel? And is it okay for God to say, I'm going to deal with Israel like this, and I'm going to deal with the church that I give to my son like this? The purpose of the church is the glorification and the service of his son. The purpose of Israel, who is never called the bride of Christ, but who are called the wife of God. Two different deals. God calls them an erring wife. Never calls the church an erring wife. Instead, we're betrothed to, we're the bride of Christ. So all I'm trying to point out is that the language that the Bible uses for national unbelieving Israel and the language the Bible uses for the church of believers of all nations is two different languages. And if we allow the language to say what it says, then we come to the conclusion that God is going to be faithfully dealing with Israel in a different way than he deals with the church. And that's all I'm driving at. And the reason that it's different is because the church, get this right, and and I'll give you clarification if you need it, it's because the church believes, believes on Christ. The erring Israelites don't. But the one thing the erring Israelites have is a promise from God. That even though they've rebelled, how many times have we seen it? How many times have we read it throughout the Old Testament so far? That God keeps saying, yes, you've rebelled against me. Yes, you broke my Sabbaths. Yes, you chased after foreign gods. Yes, you've committed adultery against me. Yes, you did all that. But I'm faithful. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you your land. I'm going to set you up eternally. Demonstrated to the nth degree by new Jerusalem. Where's that name Jerusalem come from? It's all Israelite. So I go back to my original question then, which was, this is what God spells out in his Bible, the distinction between the church and Israel. And the question becomes, is that okay? Is that all right with you that God decides to deal with national Israel differently than he deals with the church? With the church... He didn't even ask your opinion. He's just going to do it. Yeah. Because God, and pardon me for saying it, don't care what you think. He's going to do what he's going to do. And he spelled it out in the Bible. This is what I'm going to do. And then people get a hold of it and say, well, he can't do that. Because, and this is where people get theologically confused, because when it comes to the church and belief in Christ, it is believe in Christ or you're condemned. It's, it's very, very black and white. It's very, very specific. Believe in Christ or you're going to go to hell or outer darkness or under God's punishment or you believe in Christ. It's that distinct. And then you point at Israel and say, what about them? They don't believe in Christ. And Paul says, as touching the gospel, they're enemies. Okay, what about them? They don't believe in Christ. Shouldn't they also be condemned? And God's answer is, No, because I made them promises and I can't go back on my word. I never go back on my word. And I made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are absolutely going to come true because I said it and I made them promises. And the question is, are we okay with that? Are we going to allow the Bible to say what it says? Or are we going to say, well, no, the Bible has to live up to my rules. Somebody has to check with Steve. So we have to develop our theology on the basis of what Steve can accept. Yes. Yeah, and that's going to be a really narrow theology. And a really short book. And a really, really short book with a lot of blank pages. Okay, so that's where we're at. We're at the middle of chapter 43, and now there's going to be an altar of sacrifice and Levites and the children of Zadok. And when you read this stuff, it's going to feel very, very Old Testament. And yet, it's future to us. And so I go back to the original question. Is that okay? 
Is it okay for God to say, what I'm going to do in the future is very much like what I did in the past? But during this time of the church, during this time of the Gentiles being brought in, during this period of time, I'm not dealing with Israel that way. But I did deal with them that way, and I'm going to deal with them that way. And in the middle, there's this church. And that's the layout of the Bible. It's, it's unavoidable unless you just have some system you're defending. And so the question is, are we okay with that? God's happy with it. I'm happy. God's happy with it. We need to be happy with it. That's the whole point. And we don't care how Steve feels about it. <laughs> Steve doesn't care how Steve, Steve feels, doesn't care how Steve feels about it. God's going to do what God's going to do. Okay, we're in chapter 43, starting at verse 13. Here are some details about the altar of sacrifice, because sacrifices are going to be resumed. And these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a hand's breadth. In other words, that's the longer cubit. The base shall be a cubit, the width shall be a cubit, and its border on the edge round about one span. And this shall be the height of the base of the altar. And from the base on the ground to the lower ledge shall be two cubits, and the width one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits, and the width one cubit. And the altar hearth shall be four cubits, and from the altar hearth shall extend upwards four horns. Now the altar hearth shall be 12 cubits long by 12 wide, square in its four sides. And the length shall be 14 cubits long by 14 wide on all four sides. And the border around it shall be half a cubit, and its base shall be a cubit roundabout, and its steps shall face the east. Okay, very specific. God's really specific about what kind of altar they're going to sacrifice on. Then he said to me, verse 18, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day that it is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. And you shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, give them a young bull for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns and on the four corners of the ledge and on the border round about. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull for a sin offering and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. And on the second day you shall offer a male, a male goat without blemish for a sin offering. And they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish and a ram without blemish from the flock. And you shall present them before the Lord. And the priest shall throw salt on them and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall prepare daily a goat as a sin offering, and a young bull and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. For seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it, so they shall consecrate it. And when they have completed the days, it shall be that on the eighth day and onward, the priests shall offer the burnt offerings on the altar and your peace offerings and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Chapter 44. Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces to the east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter it, for the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. But as for the prince... He shall sit in it, in the gate, as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of the gate, and shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord 
filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord, and concerning all its laws, and mark well the entrance of the house with all the exits of the sanctuary. And you shall say to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, enough of your abominations, O house of Israel. Okay, so who's he talking to? Israel. That's the whole point of my introduction. God is talking to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel. He's not talking to the believers. He's not talking to the holy and sanctified ones. He's talking to the rebellious house of Israel who he has regathered and reestablished for his own name's sake. And then the Lord will say to them, enough of your abominations, O house of Israel. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart, and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to profane it. Get that straight? Who are the uncircumcised? Gentiles. And God says Gentiles are how his house was profaned. Even my house when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void and this in addition to all your abominations. So the uncircumcised Gentiles, if they come into the sanctuary of God, profane the house of God. Can that possibly be the church? Look, the people on the internet can't hear your heads rattle. No. No. You're going to have to speak back to me. It just can't be the church. He can't be talking. That's why I'm drawing these distinctions. He's talking to the rebellious, unbelieving house of Israel. He's not talking to the church. And you have not kept the charge of my holy things yourself, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites, now notice how he describes them. Verse 10, but the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. Who's he talking to? talking to unbelieving, rebellious, straying Levites. And so they're going to bear the punishment of their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary. There it is. There's God saying, okay, they've rebelled against me. They've profaned Israel by chasing after idols. They introduced false worship into Israel, my people. Okay, they're going to bear the punishment for that iniquity, but they're going to end up as ministers in my temple. Why? Because God's worship is finally going to be done correctly by the Levites who he chose from the very beginning to be the people who would serve in his temple. So their sinfulness, their rebellion against him, God is nevertheless, even though they're rebellious against the gospel, even though they're rebellious against all the rules of God and the law of God, even though they have broken the covenant and made it void, God is nevertheless going to bring the Levites back to serve in his temple because that's the way God said it's going to be. Do you understand the people groups? Okay. The Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Because they ministered to them, to the people, before their idols. And they became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Do you understand what God is saying? 
because the Levites led the people of Israel to worship idols and stood before them to minister to the idols, for that reason, God is going to make sure that now those Israelites have to stand before the people and minister to God and minister to the people with the proper relationship, not the relationship with idols. Look at what God is doing. He's taking these rebellious people and restoring them to the office that he had assigned for them in the first place. And even though they rebelled against it, and even though he's going to punish them for it, they are going to end up doing exactly what God said they were going to do, which is ministering to the people before God, because that's what God said they're going to do. You get that? His word is good. Yeah. But what did they do in all this? They let somebody else do it. They let foreigners do it. They chased after foreign gods. They rebelled. They went far from God. So why is God putting them back in service? He's going to make them do it right. He's going to make them do it right. He's going to bring them back to minister in his sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. And they shall slaughter the burnt offering and sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Verse 12, because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, and they shall not Come near me to serve as a priest to me. That appears to be the punishment. They are going to serve in my house. They are going to do what I said they're going to do. They are going to minister to the people, but they're not going to approach me. So then who is going to approach him? They shall not come near me to serve as a priest to me, nor shall they come to any of my holy things to the things that are most holy. But they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. And yet, I will appoint them to keep charge of the house and of all its service and of all that shall be done in it. But, verse 15, but the Levitical priests... Very specific. God being real specific. Okay, you're going to approach me. Now he's going to talk about the high priest. Now he's going to talk about how he is directly worshipped. Who's going to bring him his sacrifices? Who's going to enter the Holy of Holies? Notice he doesn't just say, whoever's high priest that year, whoever wants the job, whoever's up for it, because God does this a lot, that hand motion. (laughs) Listen to how specific he is. The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok. Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me. The sons of Zadok shall come near to minister to me. The Levites, they're going to minister to the people. But the sons of Zadok will minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and to keep my charge. And it shall be that they enter at the gates of the inner court and they shall be clothed with linen garments and wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court And in the house, linen turbans shall be on their heads, and the linen undergarments shall be on their loins, and they shall not gird themselves with anything that makes them sweat. And when they go out into the outer court, into the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments in which they were ministering and lay them in the holy chamber. Then they shall put on other garments that they may not transmit holiness to the people with their garments. Okay, so let's talk about this Zadok guy for a minute. This name Zadok has to do with righteousness. The word means just or justified. His name does. He's descended from Eleazar, the son of Aaron, so he's in the high priestly line. But he aided King David during the revolt 
of his son Absalom when Absalom tried to take the throne by force. And then he was subsequently instrumental in bringing King Solomon to the throne. And so after Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, Zadok was then the first high priest to serve there. Turn to 1 Kings 1, and we're going to read a bit of that story to finish off our night. 1 Kings, all the way to chapter 1. The book of 1 and 2 Kings come right behind the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel are all about David being king. But then 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles have to do with the succession of kings after David who rule over the divided kingdoms, both the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Occasionally, the southern tribes, as they go through the descendants of David, occasionally they get good kings. The northern tribes who follow after Jeroboam, Jeroboam takes them into all kinds of idol worship, takes them away from the worship that goes on in Jerusalem in the temple. The succession of kings for the northern tribes are bad every time. I mean, it's just bad straight down the line. Occasionally, Judah gets some good kings. So that's what First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is about. So David, at the beginning of 1 Kings 1, is an old man, and he's clearly preparing to die. And so his sons, naturally, remembering that he had several wives, his sons start thinking they ought to be king. But David has made a promise to Bathsheba that he is going to send the line of succession through Solomon. And that's the background here. Now, King David was old, advanced, and aged, and they covered him with clothes, but they couldn't keep him warm. So his servant said to him, let them seek a young virgin for my lord, the king, and let her attend to the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in his bosom that my lord, the king, may keep warm. That was the whole point, was just body warmth, because no matter how many clothes and blankets they put on him, he couldn't get warm. So they decided to put body warmth next to him. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag the Shunammite. And the girl was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him. But the king, the very important, did not cohabit with her. In other words, there was no hanky-panky between them. She was just there to take care of him. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, okay, that's one of David's wives, Haggith, had a son, Adonijah. He sees that his dad is dying. He exalted himself saying, I'll be the king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. And his father had never crossed him at any time by saying, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man. And he was born after Absalom. So Absalom had rebelled against his father earlier So Absalom's not going to be king. He's the next in line. He assumes that he's just going to be king. And he had conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and he followed Adonijah that helped him. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Rei, and the young men who belonged, or the mighty men who belonged to David, were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoeleth, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, and the king's servants, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? So now come, please let me give you counsel, and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. That is because once a man became king, one of the first things he would do was assess the threat of his brothers. Anybody else who could lay claim to the throne, once you'd become king, more than likely, you'd kill all your brothers, anybody else that could lay claim to the throne. 
And so Nathan has said, you need to save the life of your son Solomon. Go at once into King David and say to him, have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? And behold, while you are still there speaking to the king, I will come in after you, and I'll confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the king in the bedroom. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was ministering to the king. And Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king. And the king said, what do you wish? And she said to him, my lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king. And now, my lord, the king, you do not know it. And he has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king and Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. And as for you now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king after him. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. And behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And then Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today, and he has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, even me your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he is not invited. Has this thing been done by my lord the king, and you have not shown it to your servants, who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king vowed and said to her, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, Surely, as I vowed to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, and I will indeed do so this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. Then King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest. Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and they came into the king's presence. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, anoint him there as king over Israel, and blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. And thus may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king say, and as the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne great greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And Zadok the priest then took a horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and the people said, Long live King Solomon. 
And all the people went up after him. And the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth shook at the noise. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet and said, Why is the city making such an uproar? And while he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And then Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a valiant man, and you bring good news. But Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, No, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has also sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have appointed him king in Gahan. And they have come up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise which you have heard. And besides, Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and his throne greater than your throne. And that king bowed himself on his bed. The king has also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today while my eyes see it. Then all the guests of Adonijah were terrified. Yeah. And they arose, and each of them went their way. In other words, they abandoned Adonijah. Oh, we better not be here right now. And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, and he arose And he went and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Now it was told to Solomon saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for behold, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will be a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the ground. And if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, go to your house. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself to be a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you are going to do and wherever you turn. So eventually then David does die. That starts at verse 10. And then Adonijah actually becomes executed And then after that, Solomon decides that the only high priest is going to be Zadok, naturally, because Zadok is the one who appointed him to be king. I said all of that history and read all of that to you so that you don't miss the connection when God, with remarkable specificity, says in Ezekiel that in his temple to come, in the worship of God to come in the future, the Levites are going to be able to serve in the house and keep the house of the Lord, but they can't come near him. But the only ones that can come near him have to be the sons of Zadok because Zadok performed exactly according to what God intended back with Solomon. And he established the house And the house of Abiathar, that high priest, is cut off. And only the sons of Zadok can be approaching God with his sacrifices in the temple to come. What does that show you? That shows you that God has a really long memory. (laughs) And that God knows those that are his and those that aren't. And that God can be very specific about who approaches him and how they approach him. 
And whenever I talk about that, even when we were reading the books of Moses and God was assigning the roles to the Levites and the high priests, even at that point, I stressed, and I'm going to stress it again, that the real God, the God of the Bible, the sovereign one, the one who encases himself in majesty, has the absolute right and authority to say who approaches him, how they approach him, when they approach him. And for us to approach him, there's only one way. And Christ showed up on the planet and said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So God sent Christ to the planet to redeem us, to save us. And the only reason we're going to get to live in the light that men can't approach, the only reason we're going to stand before God and not fry eternally is because God has laid out a way of approach through his son. And he has always demonstrated himself to be a God who is very specific about who approaches him and how. And he has laid out the how. The how for us isn't through Zadok. It's unbelieving Israel that has to go through Zadok, the high priest. The church of Jesus Christ gets to God through Christ, salvation by grace through faith. Those are two different scenarios for two different people group, but they're both in the Bible. And God is going to deal with each of those people groups according to the promises and covenants he has made each of those people groups. And he's consistently going to do it. It clearly shows that, that, that they're not us and we're not them. There it is. That's all I'm getting at. I could have saved you an hour. If you would have said that an hour ago, we could have just gone home. We're not them. They're not us. And importantly, we're not God. And he's not us. And God keeps saying things like, you think that I'm altogether like you. I'm not. That's why God says stuff like, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. So God has told us his thoughts. He's told us his ways in his book. He's revealed as much of himself as he has chosen to reveal to us. Clearly, it is just a glimpse Clearly, it is just a little piece of God that we have the opportunity to look at and try to understand. But we ought to commit ourselves to letting God say whatever he wants to say about himself. And if what he wants to say about himself is that he's specific about how people approach him, and he's specific about his worship, and he's specific about promises he makes to people groups, then we just have to allow that that's the kind of God he is and just accept it because he said it. Does that make sense? Yes. Let me add one more thing. Before anybody wants to object or deny or spiritualize or allegorize the stuff we've looked at tonight, don't forget that when Paul wrote that all scripture is theanustos, is breathed out by God, the only extant scripture that existed that Paul was referring to is the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. That means that Paul said that all this stuff in Ezekiel we're reading right now is breathed out by God. So don't pretend that you have the ability within yourself and your ego-driven hubris to decide that, no, you know better than the breathed out word of God. This is what God's word says, accept it for what it is. Make sense? really sorry that I'm so clogged up. But you're right. The scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said that. So we just have to accept that as much as we love the New Testament stuff, and we do, we also have to accept that in the New Testament, Paul writes that the Old Testament is God-breathed. And we have to accept it as that. All right. Any other questions? Those Levites, the ones that cannot approach God at that, at that time when it happens, how is, it, how is it that, that they're able to keep what he says to do the second go-round and wasn't able to keep it the first first time? And then the second thing is, is that going to be an eternal 
thing that they can't approach him ever? I'll answer your first question. Then we'll take a shot at the second one. First one, yes, does God command people to do things they can't? For instance, he told you, believe in Christ. Can you do that? Can you by yourself, by your nature, can you believe in Christ? No. Do you believe in Christ? Yes. How? Because he instilled it in you. He empowered you to do the work. I think that's the same way he's going to deal with the Levites. Yeah. And then your second question, is that an eternal thing? I, I think it's a millennial thing because then you're going to enter Revelation 21 after the millennium stuff in Revelation 20. Then you're going to get new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And so then the eternal state comes in. So I'm prone to think not eternal in the way we think of eternal, but specific to that time, place, and temple, I think. But someday in eternity, ask that question and then find me and tell me what that's. I'm going to ask Christ. Yeah, if you would. Yeah, come back and explain it to me. <laughs> exactly. All right, anything else? All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Okay, now say it like you mean it. Bye. Yeah, that's right. When you say goodbye to them, mean it. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.